listening to the Local Futures podcast. In this series, we explore the power of a growing worldwide movement, the movement to shift away from corporate globalization and consumerism, and to strengthen local economies and place-based cultures instead. In this episode, Helena Norberg-Hodge talks to Al-Noor Lada. Raised in Canada, Al-Noor comes from a Sufi lineage and today lives in community in Costa Rica. He is an important and incisive activist whose work brings together political organizing, systems thinking, structural change, and narrative transformation. His conviction that the spiritual and political are fundamentally inseparable underpins his writings, which have been published in Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Truthout, Huffington Post, and more. Alnor was on the board of Greenpeace International and has directed organizations such as The Rules and Culture Hack Labs, and he is the co-author of Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, The Healing of Wealth in the Time of Collapse. Helena and Alnor have a deep friendship and a long-standing collaboration. In this episode, they explore politics and spiritualism together and delve into their own philosophies of change, sketching a holistic political vision that goes beyond the left-right divide. They analyze the outrageous and deeply abstract ideologies of today's global elite and contrast those with lessons from intact indigenous cultures. They name value shifts and structural changes that are integral to healing the world. It is all too rare to find two individuals so deep in the action of systemic change. An informed and courageous optimism pervades their conversation. Hello, Helena. Hello. It's been a long time. It's been a long Hello. time. How are you? I'm good. I'm just super busy. What about yeah, you? Well, I've been good. It's It's been like just an intense, intense time for me. Um, lots happening on the land. I, I went on my first trip in like three years uh, to New York and Toronto to see my mom and, you know, just kind of uh, disappointed in the world. You know, I was just like, oh my God, this is still happening at this, like people were lining up for the iPhone 14, like around the block. And I, I literally had to, I felt like someone punched me in the stomach. I like sat in a cafe for like 40 minutes just to recover from the, the ontological shock. And um, yeah, my, my back went out when I came back and I was like, oh, I see. Like, it's so connected to the disappointment, to the betrayal and the, you know. And yeah, it's been a fruitful time, a busy time, an intense time. But overall, I'm, I'm good and I'm glad to be back on the land and I'm feeling, um, yeah, like I think like all of us, just like uh, I feel like we have to recalibrate our strategy because if we let this thing go, it's just the momentum will take down the last tree and the last piece of cobalt and the last piece of lithium. And it just feels like that, that was my sense of being in the West. I was just like, wow, this is just happening at this level. And it feels so unstoppable. And, and I had a lot of just like emotional reaction. And now I'm back in, in kind of integrating it all. That's what I've always felt, you know, that we can't, we can't let this thing go, which is this enormous machine-like techno-economic global system, basically. And I see too many people thinking it's going to collapse. And I, I worry that people conflate the collapse of this completely artificial system with the 
collapse they're seeing in society, in environments, now with the war going on, with COVID, they're seeing collapse all around them. And they conflate that with the system collapsing. Whereas you said something which sounded a bit like a little film we made, which we called Before the Last Tree Falls. And we made that about 20 years ago, saying, watch out this escalation into this completely invisible global economic hand is creating a system that may continue growing till the last tree falls. It's artificial, it's held up by false assumption, it's supported by blindness, and uh, it's, it is threatening everything that lives. You know, and one of the, yeah. So, yeah. so, so you're, you're really, asking, you're, you're making this distinction, what do we mean by collapse? Yeah. yeah? And, and so there's, there's a few ways into the, the, the answer. One is, there, there will no doubt be a collapse of the US debt-based dollar at some point, right? Money is essentially an IOU and uh, there will be a point where uh, faith in markets and, and, and capital collapses. That is not necessarily a good thing, of course, right? Because capital is a way to organize labor right now. And what it will probably mean is that the state corporate uh, nexus will move to more fascist forms of control. Yeah. Okay. Well, then the second part of it is like the ecological collapse, which is uh, as late stage capitalism gets more desperate, it's going to extract more and more and more from the system, which is going to create, uh, you know, all the things that we know, right? Droughts, floods, sea level rises, ecosystem collapse, et cetera, et cetera, right? And what, what that is going to mean is mass displacement. And again, this could also increase fascist corporate state control, right? And so the, the, the outcomes of this thing are not good, right? I, in, 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 in either way, it's not like collapse is something that we want to speed up or we want to happen because that's going to free us from the yoke of power elites. It's going to also make them displaced and desperate and vicious, right? And so in some ways, uh, our alternatives are we have to start building localized infrastructure, community-led infrastructure now, while capital still exists, because for all its ills, it's a way to organize labor and, and to, to set up systems for gift economies and direct democracy and, and start working these atrophied muscles again. And at the same time, we can't stop, uh, obviously, the, 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 the organizing at a superstructure level, organizing to, to make power accountable, to change the rules of the global system, because that's not going away, right? The idea that 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 somehow we just focus on the commons and then we can ignore the what what governments are doing and and parastate and interstate uh, institutions are doing also makes no sense. Like we we we're going to have to address both of these things simultaneously. And then there's yeah. the, of course the third of the the self work right? Which at some point we should address because the new age and people will say you just have to work on yourself. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and and what we're saying is actually, yes, self-work mirrors the external world. And that is affected by the structure that we all benefit from the people who have organized to change that structure. And so we have to continue that superstructural work. And in the middle, we have to do the community localization work because yeah. that is and, the key to long-term resilience. Well, that's excellent. I'm glad to hear you say that. How would you describe your sense of 
political change, what you might be working for, what you might be hoping for. Mm -hmm. um, I think the starting place for me in this is around uh, understanding ideology, right? So I, I think ideology is always a background condition, right? Ideology always exists. And there's, I almost see it as like an invisible architecture. And so we can say we're not political or we're not ideological, but by doing that, we are complicit in the dominant ideology, right? And that exactly. dominant ideology is, is neoliberal. Capitalist modernity is like a totalitarian culture that is social, political, economic, religious, spiritual. It pervades all aspects of our lives. And neoliberalism is just one chapter. You know, it's just the latest chapter of that. It's not a, even a left or right thing. It's every uh, nation state is in the neoliberal business, right? It's a growth-based, debt-based, corporate um, sort of trickle-down illusion that has very particular points of view on everything, right? It's, it's not an ideology. It's, a, it's more akin to a theology, right? They believe human beings are selfish. They believe hierarchy is inevitable and necessary, actually. The individual is the prime unit, right? Thatcher's, Margaret Thatcher's famous line, there's no such thing as society, just individuals and families. Um, they believe that uh, the world can be understood through our separatist materialist worldview, right? That the all objects can be reduced to the material constituent parts, their components, and that we are separate from that. And that this separation can be understood rationally you know, this and, is cosmology. And, yeah, and I think there, you know, we should be explicit. What we're talking about is modern science, when you say that. That's yeah. what modern science is. Yeah. yeah. So and, we have and, to be clear about that critique. That, that well, modern science and the media apparatus uh, that promotes these, and, and academia and uh, technology and reason, these are not independent things existing in the world. They're subsectors of this dominant ideology, right? And so what it means to be political is to be aware of the context in which we live and choose consciously to live in a way that challenges the life-destroying logic of neoliberal capitalism. I, I think that, that's, that's what it means to be yeah. well, political for me. I also, I think it's interesting from my point of view to point out that that system from the outset has been global. And so this, this setup of that system started with those Western traders, supported by Christianity first, and then growing into very explicit economic trading regimes, slavery and closures that all the time helped to accumulate wealth for global trade and global exchange. So even when we look at the changes in the banking system, we'll see this started happening, you know, around the 1400s as the traders were moving out from Italy and Spain. You see this, yeah, we're talking about this change in worldview, which even takes place in terms of how you do accounting for, for banks. It, it takes the form of, as you were saying, every, every assumption about all of life, humanity, yeah. what are we as human beings, what is nature, all the time, this extractive global system was about dividing in a mechanistic way to suit the extraction 
dividing intellectually and physically, you know, driving people away from land, driving people away from a connection in human scale structures, because we were never self-reliant. I always like to talk about community reliance, the way we evolved and the way we even could function or live at all was in groups, in intergenerational groups, human scale groups, and the organizational structures that that entailed, you know, sometimes it had led to some power hungry leaders and quite often, in fact, but, but there was, what I'm recognizing now more and more is that when the economy was rooted in place and in human scale structures, it was very difficult to accumulate lots of wealth, extremely difficult. You, you know, when you're talking about water and animals and building materials and the actual material on which you depend, you can only manage and control so much. But it's as we move into this make-believe economy, which, you know, in modernity, especially now is subsidized by supposedly cheap oil, supposedly cheap energy, because now with these global traders, we're not allowed to actually do the arithmetic and say, well, actually this isn't cheap at all. How no, can this no. come into the marketplace and just destroy what is abundant, what is local? And, and, and just to, to riff off that and to close the loop on the question of like, what is it to be political? Um, you hit it right on 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 the the head, and and this is what Oslan would say when when he coined this term capitalist modernity is the project of modernity, the project of a technological civilization. It is no coincidence that started at the same time as colonialism and imperialism, and the expansion of the global empire, right? At the same time as uh, abstract thought and the so-called enlightenment, and all of these um, factors play off each other. Right. And so also neoliberalism and, and this sort of the recent chapter in capitalist modernity also is a moral philosophy. Right. Because it tells us that if you have wealth, you are somehow worthy, intelligent, smart, etc. And if deserving. And if you're poor, you're somehow stupid, lazy, etc. Right. And so what it's doing is that it's creating a, a moral justification and a rationalization for the accumulation of wealth. Right. And almost every premise, no, not almost every premise of neoliberalism has been proven to be false. Right. We know that human beings are not inherently selfish, that we were cooperative, altruistic, living in small bands. We know that hierarchy is not necessary or inevitable. Uh, you know, we know that you cannot continue growing on a finite planet. Right. We know that uh, we are not rationalist, materialist, separate beings. We're in an entangled quantum universe of interbeing like we know all of these premises are not true and yet it is still the dominant culture and so to be political is to be in rejection of the the propaganda that is neoliberalism okay and i would like to add to that what i think is a very significant component and that is it wasn't just those who accumulated wealth who were seen as important what happened is that this system rendered uh, invaluable and backward experiential knowledge, yeah. local knowledge. And so what happened systematically is that those who had practical skills, particularly those who knew how to grow food, how to tend to animals, the land 
based cultures were seen as backward and stupid. It's really important that we see that central to this trajectory has been urbanization, has been driving people away from the land, the water, the knowledge about the specifics and the skills and the human scale structural organization into urban centers where they now become dependent on those distant ultimately global traders, very much helped with the local elites. As you herd people into these urban centers, no social fabric to link them, thrown on this heap where suddenly everything you need depends on money. So now we're talking about abstraction in terms of the actual material, as mm -hmm. well as the abstract knowledge that becomes as seen as superior. So those who can manipulate words and numbers and this sort of essentially what's so interesting, Elnor, is to look at the rise of the left brain in all of this. And this is where yeah. Ian McGilchrist is really interesting. Yeah. And it's and also where- master is great, great yeah. on this. Yeah. yeah. And, and you could see how, the, and again, why it needs to be described as patriarchal because the men tended to move more rapidly in that anti-nature, anti-land, let's go out and explore and conquer, you know, sort of mentality and the conquering yeah. of people and the conquering of nature, of course. If, if, we, if we go back to um, what you were saying about enclosure, right? And I don't know how familiar people are with the, 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 this kind of enclosure movement that happened in the um, 14th and 15th century, starting in the UK, but all over Europe was, we are told this narrative that the end of serfdom was and and what was the beginning of capitalism right that somehow capitalism uh dissolved us of the feudal system but actually what happened is the feudal system ended through what were called the peasant revolts and uh there was this huge popular movements taking back land taking back uh commons assets working together and what the elites started the power elites of europe especially the UK at the time, decided to do was to take back all the uh, so-called means of production and to put that into private ownership. And they tried to reinstitute a type of feudalism, which ended up being proto-capitalism and, and giving birth to this modern capitalism. And they, they squashed these peasant revolts. Exactly, yeah. And, and at, the, at the same time, what was happening was the beginning of enlightenment logic. Francis Bacon, Adam Smith, uh, etc right and and what ends up happening is that they also the power elites realize that they have to create a new ontology a new worldview which is dualism right because what dualism said is mind and matter are separate the human and earth are separate the human is the pinnacle of evolution and therefore needs to uh, dominate nature and also then women were categorized as nature, indigenous people as nature, right? Anything that could not be controlled by abstract rationalist thought mm -hmm. was put in the secondary category, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, sort of culture versus nature, right? Society versus nature. And, and this became the pinnacle of, of what, was, what it was to be educated and civilized. And so this, this sort of dualist ontology is born and gives justification and alibi to the way we started structuring cities and pushing people into cities and abstracting our ability to be in relationship 
right? And so if you don't know where your water is coming from, and you don't know where your food's coming from, you don't know where your waste is going, you don't know where your electricity is coming from or your energy source is coming from. And you're now also creating this cheap source of labor for people in very unhappy environments, uh, away from tribal knowledge, away from tribal ties, away from elders. It's the perfect starting conditions for what 500 years later we can now see as the driver of ecological collapse, of climate change, of depression and ennui, of zoonotic viruses like COVID, which will increase and increase as we encroach in the natural world. This was the beginning of the meta crisis. And now when we look at what the tech utopians and the neoliberals are saying is all we need is more growth. Exactly. All we need is to be have more cities and make those cities are the most dense, efficient way to organize ourselves. And of course, the, they've created a world that is rationalized by their belief system. And what we've, what actually this last 500 years of pillage has been is a reflection of a very particular type of separatist, rationalist, materialist worldview. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, remember also, we need to throw in that word patriarchal. We need to, as you said, we can read, you know, statements. We see the development of this new thinking and we see racism, uh, anti-nature, misogynist thinking. So the foundations in this 500-year-old system are pretty hideous. What I'm trying to say to people who are often not willing to look at that because it just sounds so big. It sounds, it's been there 500 years. How on earth are we going to change it? What I'm saying is that from the outset, there's been resistance. And what you can see within the Western world, and I think it's very important that we acknowledge this, is that there's been a cultural turning. And I see it happening even right now with people who've arrived in Beijing or in Mumbai, you know, only recently. What happens is in that environment, so alienated from nature, so cut off from community, people develop a natural longing for it. Mm -hmm. And so we should really, we need to stress this. We need to identify all these places where people are waking up to that. We see the attempt to put the word eco in front of everything, eco-literacy, eco-theology, eco-psychology, as people, individuals within a system that is still continuing with the same foundations, absolutely the fragmentation of thinking, the disassociation from experiential knowledge, this left brain, which has now has been stifling the right brain. So it's very interesting to learn how new research shows that this left side is also, it's not only fragmenting reality, but it sees it in a superficial way. So the right hemisphere is seeing the patterns, but also the greater detail, the nuances. And this is, mm -hmm. so what's happening is why also women tend to be almost everywhere you look in a sort of ecological, environmental, um, more spiritual spheres, women are the leaders, but they're not at the forefront. They don't tend you know, to be standing on the stages. But I think we've got to really acknowledge that leadership from the more feminine side and of course, feminine men like you, Alnor. And I know you'll take that as a compliment. 
Uh-huh. You know, you're a very rare, a very rare specimen of a male uh, who has, you know, recognized and valued that in others and in yourself. You know, and really, it's it's so much to do with the wholeness. It's to do with experiential knowledge. It's to do with this, with the pride in being awake emotionally, being sentient. Uh, whereas, of course, this left path, you know, the typical, um, you know, sort of image that we can hold to describe what happened is how these young men were put in boarding schools and were trained not to feel, not to trust their bodies, you know, to operate according to the clock, to become tough themselves so that they could be tough soldiers in this system. So I think the feminization is the central part of it. I'm sure you would agree with that. No, I, I completely agree. And I, like, if we look at what's happening with like the Silicon Valley tech utopian worldview, right? And this move towards the ideology of long-termism, for example, which is this kind of Elon Musk, uh, Zuckerberg ideology, and and there's people like William McCaskill um, at, at, at Oxford. Can you define define long term as a yeah. more because yeah. I you know so, I'm not that familiar with it, and I imagine most people aren't. Um, there was a, there's a, a really good journalist uh, out of Salon magazine named Emil Torres, who you could just Google uh, long termism and and put Emil Torres or Salon. Um, they do a great job of summarizing the ideology, but essentially the ideology is this mix between tech utopianism, um, transhumanism, uh, neoliberalism, and uh, white savior complex. It's basically the book, Willie McCaskill's book is called What We Owe the Future. And the argumentation is that um, there's going to be these future humans that are in these digital artificial intelligence worlds that are our our uh, forebears, our predecessors. They will come after us. We will be their ancestors. And what we the the, the calculation, which is just this made up abstract number that Nick Bostrom, um, one of the fathers of transhumanism, has invented, ten to the power of fifty-eight, right? So ten with fifty-eight zeros after. And these are future humans in some digital realm that we would have created. And we owe it to them to create a world in which they have what they need, which you know justifies why we need to mine Mars and the moon and asteroid belts and give them the kind of safe harbor because each one of those lives is as important as our life in the here and now, right? That's essentially the ideology. And it, it's, it's so deeply abstract. It, it, like any sensible person knows that makes absolutely no sense right? Like where the temporal focus is, where the values are, what they're building, for whom, in what world, but who are these beings? Like any, you don't need to be a philosopher to just look at that as completely nonsensical, but it's also couched in all of this moralizing, like similar to the effective altruism community. Like we can rationally know who to best give money to because this is going to save lives. And it's like, well, you're not looking at the entire system of how we created a world in which some people can die of malaria and some people can't. It's kind of abstract thought to its logical conclusion. And, and what you realize is when you start to flex our political muscles, you know, these atrophied muscles of, because uh, we're told just to be consumers, that we're not political, right? Ideology is bad. And what, what that default position does is it allows the dominant system to become stronger and for us to be complacent and mm-hmm. complicit in it. 
But when you start actually deconstructing the ideas of the Dharman culture, you, you start to say, well, no, this is, I can't align with this. And then when you deconstruct it further and you realize that these, these overdeveloped left brain ideologies of tech utopianism or transhumanism are really belong to a certain set of people uh, who are largely male, mostly Western educated, disproportionately white, disproportionately went to the same schools in Silicon Valley, Stanford, the same Ivy League schools, uh, very uh, strong disproportion of being on the spectrum of some kind. And you, you realize that actually, like, we need to move in the opposite direction. We need to be right brain in our uh feminine perspective well, whether yeah. we're gendered male or female right we, we more intuitive interconnected earth-based gaian based temporally here and now uh empathetic to what's actually happening on the planet then we we start to see the battle lines and the contours much clearer yeah and i just want to add to that to embodied embodied yes. is a very important part of it and yes. that and it's this it's disembodied Again, this yeah. movement into abstract knowledge away from experiential and away from wholeness and embodiment that has been so dangerous. And that's, again, where we haven't trusted our gut. We haven't trusted our heart, our soul, our, our whole beingness yeah. and been you know, persuaded through numbers and abstract concept. I also want us to see and acknowledge that, as I was saying earlier, there's a pattern where people have been driven into those cities, when they can, they're finding their way back to the land. There mm -hmm. is an appetite that develops and it's that consciousness I'm craving and it's almost like an embodied craving for community, for connection to human life and to non-human life. And mm -hmm. that's also, as you see the thinking developing. And I think from my point of view, uh, you know, it's not, often been holistic enough because the, you know, the eco-psychology movement has tended to only focus on the deep immersion in and, and embodied appreciation of the rest of nature, the oneness with the, the cosmos. But what I experienced in traditional cultures is that the, the deep embodied experience of connectedness to other humans is vital for a a, a healthy, balanced, uh, empowered sense of self. And it's so much to do with what happens, particularly as a young child. My Bible is that what, those years of experience in Ladakh in the, before the mental pollution and just seeing such ease, such lightness, such joy, such vitality, such humor, and just such ease, you know, just yeah. calmness, ease and equanimity. Um, in the relationships that, as well. Well, in all in all the relationships, in the relationship yeah. to self, in the relationship to others, but of course the relationship to self is shaped by the relationship to others. Mm -hmm. And so the the way that children were reared with so many hands to carry mm -hmm. every baby and and growing up so that when you're five, you're already carrying a baby, already nurturing, you're already engaged. And, you know, the amazing thing is children want to imitate their elders. They mm -hmm. want to. And then you segregate mm -hmm. them into these schools and you create these artificial Some monocultures. Children. You create the chicken cage of elbows and jealousy and uh, yeah. 
it was so telling also to realize that when you're in that natural constellation, it never occurs to a five-year-old, oh, why can't I run as fast as my eight-year-old neighbor or my brother? You know, it doesn't even occur to you. Yeah. It doesn't even occur to a mother that, oh, my child hasn't walked by the age of one. Oh, my God. You know, it's just this sense of unfolding. Even as a pregnant mother, I, you know, I can contrast what that traditional lifestyle meant, what it meant when you were living at a natural pace. I think we should be paying a lot of attention to speed, speed as a total consequence of this techno-economic a monstrous system that is imposing this speed that is again connected in a multitude of ways to to fear to fear of being left behind to the whole pressure now to become someone in this globalized system to the pressure to become educated pressure to to be somebody through what you become are you going to be a lawyer are you going to be a doctor are you going to be this, you're defined by your economic function in that system. So all these stresses and the speed, which is completely linked to technology. So I, I think perhaps this is one of the most important ways to reach people now and to help more people realize they can get out of that prison. It's about reconstituting our humanity by coming back to place, by coming back to this connected environment where we're connected to intergenerational community and to the rest of life. So this mm. is what I'm calling the worldwide localization movement. And I'd love to hear whether that picture fits with what you were thinking. Mm -hmm. um, or... Maybe I'll say before I do that, maybe I'll say just one thing to connect the dots also for, for listeners <laughs> is that you, you were saying um, that you're feeling optimistic, right? About, uh, the, the awareness of this for the first time. And, and it's true, right? That if you were to have this position in Victorian England, you would be seen as a mad person, right? Everyone wanted to move to the cities. Everyone wanted to be so-called civilized. If you had this point of view in the roaring 1950s, you would have been seen as a mad person as well, right? Because yeah. there was this belief in so-called development, post-World War II, Bretton Woods, you know, all that sort of trajectory. And now we are seeing people start to understand from direct experience that the pace of technological uh, capitalistic fascist behavior is just, it's not conducive to human life, right? We're seeing uh, more and more people opt out of the system. We're seeing more and more people wanting to live outside back into localized community for sure, right? And what we're seeing is the, this kind of bifurcation where the, the propaganda of the neoliberal machinery is trying everything it can more desperately and more desperately to, to continue its way. There's definitely an awakening to this in a way that we have not, I have not seen in my lifetime. I think maybe you would say you have not seen it in your lifetime. Yeah. It, there's a, a, a kind of crescendo of opting out. I know people now who identify themselves as conscientious objectors to neoliberalism. Yeah. Right? And, 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 and that, that I've not seen this happen in this way so strongly. And, and people are becoming more ideologically literate so they could see the, the kind of construct of the system. Now, the, the other quick thing to say is that we're not also suggesting that we are going back to some paleolithic way of living, right? 
What Absolutely. We, we can't go back in time, but what we can do is, uh, let's say, synthesize the best aspects of our deep time ancestors and, and go back to cultures that worked for 99% of human history that, that uh, we know aspects of still can work today, right? And there's still a role for technology. There's still a role for uh, denser urban environments, but that cannot be the, the, the sole motive. This idea of like progress as an arrow and Western civilization as the tip of that arrow and everything else is considered backwards is an insane way to live. And by rebelling against that or moving against that, it doesn't mean that we think we're going to go back to some uh, globalized ruralism. Something else wants to be born. I see it being born. I see mm -hmm. people coming together, deeper human scale connections to organize themselves, to become responsible in terms of their use of the water, the soil of the living earth that feeds and clothes and houses them. Yeah. And there, what we're seeing is that, yes, there's a role for technology, but very different technologies from what are being foisted on us. Uh, even up to the 60s, there was the development in appropriate technologies. I think it's also incredibly important now to distinguish between the use of technology to contribute to larger change versus yes. the technologies that we want to encourage as part of these thriving embedded communities, those that work with life and, and are based on the feedback loops that you can only get from more localized structures. So yeah. you're adapting whatever the technologies might be to the needs of places, to the needs of specific peoples and cultures. Sure. So that's, on, that's this kind of technology that we want to be developing as we move forward. But right now where we are today, we need to make use of an infrastructure of communication technologies that right now is badly needed for communication. We don't need speedier technology. We do not need 5G. Who needs 5G? The finance markets, a financial casino that's playing havoc with all of our lives. We do not want that casino to have even greater speed and power. So let's try to have a clear voice looking at how most of that technology has actually served the accumulation of wealth into hands of, you know, fewer and fewer hands with, you know, a few men strutting around on the global stage, boasting about their hundreds of billions. This is insane. And if we don't recognize the connection between these techno systems and that wealth accumulation and the destruction of nature, we really haven't understood anything. We've got to step back and look at those connections. And then where do we go from here? Like I say, we wanna make use of these communication technologies to start building up enough awareness so that we have some kind of political momentum to try to share ideas, to share vision. Because I think yeah. what we need to think about is this frightening discussion now where so many people are so skeptical of government so they don't want government to have the power to regulate anything what they're not looking at alnor is that for these last particularly the, since the second world war what's been happening is that governments have been used 
to regulate every place-based activity. So you and me as individuals, every business place-based belonging to a particular country regulated while the global players have been deregulated in the name of exactly. harmonization, in the name of creating this global village. Those giants have been deregulated and those giants do not pay tax. Meanwhile, everybody else is squeezed for more and more taxes and with regulation. And as a consequence, what's happening is that the majority of people who are there victims of this over-regulation, taxation, they just want laissez-faire economics, government out of the way, don't want government to regulate anything. And in the meanwhile, the real hegemonic empire of corporations and banks are running off with the world, running off with, you know. Yeah, and it's, and it's yeah. worse, right? Because as they get stronger, and the corporate state nexus becomes stronger, people's trust in the government will erode even further. Yeah. Right? And, and so it actually is creating a feedback loop. Exactly. Where, where corporations are becoming more powerful and, and most people are saying, well, we trust the state less. Therefore, yeah. the consequence is less regulation. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, they're giving and so the... the role of government has to be, at least in the short term, to roll back the power that has been given to corporations to regulate at a global level and then to localize at a local level. Exactly. And you see, Alnor, it's so important that we spell this out because a lot of intelligent people, by not studying the global system, are tending to look at things through national lenses and they're just not seeing this picture. So as they look at the national scene, they end up on the wrong side. You know, often out of the best intentions, it's like the silence the silence about this hegemonic concentration, that's the biggest problem we're facing now. Yeah. And then of this course- This is also, yeah, why, you know, Emmanuel Wallerstein's work I think is so important, right? Where, where he explains this in world systems theory, right? Which is like, like the, the, one of his key points that I think is, is critical is that when you move to this abstract globalized world system, what's going to happen is there's going to be a simultaneous increase in nationalism Absolutely. And patriotism, while there's invisible deal-making and rule-making at this global level. And the contradiction between the two is what's going to let the, the momentum wave of power move forward for the corporate state nexus. Yeah. You know, and he was spot on about that. He was saying this in the 70s. So I, I know it's not a, a very populist word, especially right now, but I still identify as an anarchist. And yeah. I think that the, the um, anarchism is the most sophisticated political philosophy on the planet. And I think it it has been since the 1800s. And when we look at the history of the left, you know, what essentially happened was that Marx and Engels pushed out uh, the Kropotkin and the, the kind of Russian anarchists in the first um, uh, international. And, and that was really the downfall of the left. And and what what anarchism is, what it means to me, and and you know the the let's say the political textbook definition is not anarchy. It's not chaos. That 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 was a that's part of the smear campaign. Let's say what what anarchism means is uh, localization of power. One of the the key principles of anarchism is called subsidiarity, which essentially means that people at the local level affected by decisions should be the people making those decisions on how they should live 
on how resources should be distributed. It doesn't mean no government. It just means the role of government should be to localize power. And um, I also have a more bioregional anarchist approach, which is uh, land should not just be governed by people who proclaim self-reliance, but should be done through bioregions, through where waterways begin and end, where forests begin and end, where mountain ranges begin and end. And we need to organize at bioregional levels because each bioregion has very, very particular needs and particular histories and particular contexts. And um, we could call this, you know, to go back to Ossalan, who coined capitalist modernity, he calls this kind of democratic confederalism, right? I call it uh, sort of bioregional anarchism or bioregional localism. But there's no, like, I don't believe there's one way to do it. I just believe that people in their particular context need to make these decisions. And that means the dissolution of the current structures, which are based on globalized corporate elite interests. Yeah, but I think also, you know, generally with anarchism, I would say that a lot of the thinking left out the ecological realities. And therefore, you know, for me, once you start recognizing that need for local knowledge, you know, anarchist knowledge is, you know, so it's just, I feel that the term embodies both the decentralization of power, the subsidiarity in terms of political, you know, human organization, but it also acknowledges that need for those, that place-specific knowledge. And to me, bioregional is definitely a part of that. It just, that's another word that's sort of, but again, bioregional doesn't work to both describe the political decentralization and the ecological realities, which is why I would love it if, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it is important to look for language that can be as holistic as possible. Now, local is not enough. In terms of what we're up against, it's not enough. We need to really warn our listeners that if they want to help support a movement towards greater well-being, and I think this is our goal, greater human mm -hmm. and ecological well-being, the well-being of everything that lives. We know that we're completely interconnected with the rest of life. So yes, we've, we've got that broader ecological awareness and we're concerned about justice. We want greater. And, and, you know, and wanna... yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, and I think that, so as I say, I'm sort of lobbying for local as quite a good term, but I'm now having to, to you know, say very clearly, it's not enough. HSBC, the world's local bank, every supermarket now calling themselves, right. you know, you're local. Because the think tanks from above know that we long for local. They know we long mm -hmm. for communities. So they're using it as they have done with sustainable, organic, virtually every term we've come up with. So we need quite descriptive, holistic language. And so I'm you know, particularly keen to encourage people to think about the food economy as the area where they can make the most rapid and most important structural shift. And there I'm saying, let's be clear, more localized, shorter distances and more diversified production. These and smaller. So at least if we use the language of smaller and but really we should say slower as well. Smaller, slower, meaning more job rich, less technology, uh, shorter distances, diversified production, 
in more localized systems. That sort of covers what's now being co-opted by the language of re regen. Regenerative mm -hmm. is now a single term that means that so many grassroots, wonderful, small, organic, diversified, permaculture-inspired, wonderful farms or gardens are now calling themselves Regen and giving an alibi to Nestle and Kellogg's and the giants that have been happily promoting regenerative agriculture because it prevents that clarity about the need to shorten distances and, and more diversified production, not just diversified soil, but diversified production above ground, because that's a vital characteristic to support genuinely organic production. The monoculture is unhealthy. It's been part of this extractivist capitalist system from the outset, imposing monoculture for distant markets and you know, ever more distant markets. That's the enemy. We need more localized, diversified for markets closer to the farm. Yeah. I agree what's happening with, uh, and this is just the nature of neoliberalism as a kind of complex adaptive system, is that it will latch on to any language that provides it an alibi, right? And regenerative right now is vague enough to do that. And I think uh, we have to be more specific in some ways in our demands. Yeah. I think the other thing they're doing is they'll use uh, localization against us by saying, well, we want to be global. And of course, nowhere in localization are we saying we're not global. Right, because what will happen? This is why I like the idea of, of confederalism, right, or confederations. It's like we at a local level are there are certain things that just make sense localized. Food should be localized. Uh, economic activity should potentially be in a cooperative, right, and and centered at a local level. But that doesn't mean information needs to be local, right? Doesn't mean relationships necessarily need to be local. Like, of course, we are tapped into a broader cosmopolitan whole and a broader guy and hole and all of that. And so I think we do need to find new language um, and maybe there's something in bioregional confederalism, you know, maybe there's something in uh, democratic confederalism, but, but that, th this idea of people deciding on their own fates needs to be central to that somehow. The, the idea of people growing their own food with shorter distances, um, the idea of, of people creating uh, fair economic systems, you know, all, the the idea of people also being connected to a, to a whole, and also bringing in the spiritual dimension, right? That's also what anarchism doesn't do well, right? That you don't get that there's also a spiritual mystical reason why we come together in these ways. And I, I jokingly sometimes call myself a mystical anarchist, you know, because mysticism and anarchism are the same impulse, right? No mediation. No gods, no masters. We as people will decide. We don't need, you know, books and priests and that 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 the relationship to the divine is also happening through our relationship with food, our relationship to land, our relationship to each other. What I've seen is that when people feel deeply connected to that forest, to this this water, to this actually experiential knowledge, that's the spiritual foundation that creates an expansive self now so for me that birth in an in a multi you know generational community and that sense of feeling connected and non-threatened 
that creates <clears throat> the expansive sense of self. We have a really important distinction here between the type of universal global sense of oneness in the spiritual movement. So often the new age fell for globalization as yes, we're going across the world, we're expanding, we're creating this global village. What we were talking about was the expansion of Monsanto and Arthur Daniel Midlands and HSBC Bank. That's what it was as an economic process. And as a cultural process, it's created a situation where every child, you know, from Costa Rica to Australia wanted to be recognized, wanted to be famous inside this global monoculture, completely insane, deeply destructive, robbing people of an identity that is genuine, an identity where you are known, where you're actually recognized for who you are, not for what you look like, not for the car you have, not for having spent your whole life training to be the number one in violin or the number one in football on the global stage. So that created this culture of spectators and a few stars and on both sides of that miserable. So the, again, what localizing is about is actually rebuilding those webs of connected relationships that do help us to experience that spiritual reality of connectedness, of the oneness of life, does that both in human relationships and in the connection to, to, to the cosmos. And from that comes people who are so much more tolerant, who are so much more open to difference. The, the sort of xenophobia, the fear that people often associate with localism because they've only ever experienced backward local communities that were left behind, where people were marginalized, where people were made to feel stupid and backward, and where everything had gone to the city. People were thoroughly disempowered, and there what grows is fear, xenophobic tendencies, mm. a type of conservatism that's very unattractive and unhealthy. So I think this is, uh, again, something that needs to be yeah, discussed yeah, much more. It, it, there's almost a, a link again back with, with the left brain, <laughs> right brain divide in the sense of like oneness as an abstract concept exactly. is very exactly. easily co-opted by globalization and it is a form of spiritual bypassing exactly right? the, you, you just like you can only access elevated spiritual states through your physical body right and we are fractal reflections of the whole our physical body can only access these states through a place-based relationship right which is why when you look at spiritual texts the place where these uh, moments of enlightenment happen are so critical Right, Buddha and the Bodhi tree, Muhammad and Mount Hira, um, etc. Right, you know yeah. that, that th there is no like just like our body is fractally connected, the 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 entry point into the living world is also fractally connected. And so when we go into this bypass of of oneness without being rooted, then we get into this sort of dualistic place again. Exactly. And and and, and it's and it's deeply it's deeply problematic. And, exactly. and, and then and then you're right like also what's happening in this in the center realm of, of of competition is that if we look at it in spiritual terms um you know all the mystical traditions many indigenous cultures the whole practice 
is about the transcension of subject object, right? To get to a place where my uh, small self ego is diminished to the point where I can merge into something bigger than me, right? And we've created a culture in this com competition culture that reifies the small ego. And it's actually preventing spiritual insights, growth, etc. Because everywhere we go, we're validating our identity, right? My passport, my driver's license, what I do for a living, uh, you know, what happens when you Google me, you know, like the, the shallowness of the culture is actually preventing uh, spiritual development. And not only preventing, but I would say with these technologies, it's taking us massively backward because it's creating this craving for recognition, a craving for connection. And the avenue that's being opened for children is one that leads to further alienation and separation. I mean, it's, it's, it could, I often say, I really think the devil himself could not have thought up a better system to divide us from one another, from the earth and from ourselves. I, I mean, I remember already being shocked when I, in America, 20, 30 years ago, more than that, no, more than that, actually saw how the daughter of a friend had a little list, you know, stuck on a fridge, on a fridge magnet about how to make a friend. And it had things like, you know, number one, you know, invite them around to your house. Number two, you know, give them a gift. And it was so shocking coming from Europe to realize the degree of alienation already that little children had to sort of now think intellectually about how to make friends. And I realized, and actually now I think about it, it's much, much longer ago, it was before I was even in Ladakh, I was aware that one of the reasons for the difference between Sweden, where I grew up, and America, it had so much to do with the uprooting. At that time, uh, um, every child was moving house as they were growing up about seven times. And that uprooting from relationships to cousins, to grandparents, to neighbors, to some kind of interconnected sense of being uh, was already you know, having a dramatic effect. Now, the, the, and I was really pleased to talk to Gabo Mate about this study that had shown how beneficial it is for children to have contact with their grandparents. And, and you know, this would be a very interesting indicator to look at in terms of depression, addiction, uh, other forms of breakdown. And it's something that I've done, I've carried out my own little personal study on this and I see it again and again that where children have the benefit at least of connection with grandparents in a culture, you know, that had already pushed this little nuclear family that was already, you know, not the healthiest place to grow up in, but at least that contact with grandparents uh, proved very, very helpful. So this to me is spiritual. This is, when we talk spirituality, let's remember the kindness of the grandmother, the, the helping hand, the, 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 these are the practical demonstrations of a sense of spiritual connectedness. The spiritual isn't separate. And I do see a lot of Westerners who've got very, very understandably, very spiritual 
have often developed some of the most selfish tendencies and some of the most unloving practices. You know, one of the things that I would often see in spiritual communities too is this idea that we create our own reality. And that would lead to justifying, you know, not lending a helping hand when someone is feeling very sad or when someone is feeling quite understandably unhappy. But no, no, we create our own reality. It's up to them. You know, so there, there are some very dangerous traps in a type of new age spirituality that isn't broad, holistic. And I guess I would say, for me, again, the roadmap was that whole way of life in Ladakh, where it was so, all spelled out so clearly. And of course, what I lived with were the happiest people I had ever encountered. Yeah, yeah. And you've had a rare experience of being in an intact culture, worthy of the name culture. Exactly. And, and none of us have experienced that. Most no. of us have not experienced no. that, right? No. We, right. we have been born into a broken culture yeah. with all the attendant grief and consequences that come with that, yeah. with no elders, no spiritual orientation, yeah. no oral knowledge or traditions, yeah. Yeah. no place-based knowledge, yet alone place itself, right? We, we are diaspora. We're, you know, as Stephen Jenkinson would say, spiritual orphans. Exactly. And, 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 you know, the idea of like, what is technology's role in that? It's the, the level of enthusiasm for technology is so confusing to me, right? And so when you were saying a more holistic spirituality, I was also thinking, and also a more critical spirituality, right? Um, we have this line in this, uh, in, in this book that we'll share the link of um, that co-author uh, Lynn Murphy and I wrote together. And it's ostensibly about philanthropy. It's called post-capitalist philanthropy. But one of the lines uh, is that if, if you do not have a critique of capitalist modernity, you are contextually irrelevant. But if all you have is a critique, you are spiritually and creatively impoverished. Right? Exactly. That, that we, we need to understand the structure of this system, even if we, we, our lens is purely a spiritual lens, because there is no such thing as a purely spiritual lens. The political and the spiritual are completely intertwined because there's this also this inner outer mirroring that's happening. And so when we think of technology, I think of it as a subset of the logic of the dominant system. And so it's the purpose of technology is to serve the logic of the system, right? And to have this enthusiasm that somehow technology is gonna solve our problems or Bitcoin will or geoengineering, it's like, A, who decides on the research priorities? Who decides on what is being developed? Why it's being developed? Who will benefit from it? Who are the test subjects? All of it is within a neoliberal system where, you know, David Graeber's famous line where he says, I thought we would have flying cars and all I got was 140 characters on Twitter because <laughs> this is the priority of venture capital and the priority of power elites and and, and also spiritually, technology is so complex, right? Because we've been offsetting our labor onto technology and then not, and we can't be aware of the consequences that come from that, right? So every new technology we create creates a thousand consequences we have no idea about, right? And Marshall McLuhan used to talk about this with, with the automobile. He says, 
we invented the car and we thought we somehow created a net good, a net positive. But yet what we did was we didn't look at the, the previous consequences, which was we were breeding hundreds of thousands, if not millions of horses who then essentially were ignored and or, and or slaughtered. We created the, the road essentially for the car. And then all of a sudden the suburb, because now you could travel, you know, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers outside of the city. We created the subdivision, the, the divided house, the atomized self. You know, the car became this uh, kind of uh, roving hotel room for young kids. So the teen pregnancies spiked, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And, and all of these unintended consequences that we have no idea about. And it happens every time we create a new technology. And yet, we, start, we still believe that technology can solve the problems that it's creating, right? And that industrial capitalism is creating. And if we're creating these technologies with the same priorities, the same mindset, the same ontology, as we've created the life-destroying machine of neoliberalism, then we're going to amplify and amplify the, the, the problems modern civilization is creating. And this is, yeah. again, how we get back to the spiritual is the political, right? And there is no distinction. Because we are determining our pathways, not only for future physical realities, but also future metaphysical realities. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when you say spiritual, I guess I would also say that on a more practical level, it's about holistic experiential knowledge and raising the status of that. And let's remember again that right and left brain balance that we need. I'd also like to add, it sounds very sort of 60s, I guess, to say this, but I actually don't think we should say we create these technologies. If we look at that trajectory we started with earlier, this whole project of, of capitalist modernity, as you were calling it, there were players all the way from the beginning driving people off the land, driving them into slave-like production to suit yeah. this extractive system. That same system grew into giant mobile corporations and banks that today have more power than ever. And it's the science that was funded by these vested interests that were driving this system. It was connected to the war machine. It's been connected to the you know, industrial war machine for a very long time. And mm -hmm. we were herded in this direction. We had wonderful adverts on television. We had television itself, which was part of a tool to manipulate us. But also having said all that, I just want us to, or which I know you agree with, remember that we know that the majority of people out there are not driving this system. They didn't create it. They don't want it. You know, again and again, when you talk to people, even people, so-called conservative people voting, whichever way they're voting now, left or right, people know there's something fundamentally wrong. There's a longing for change. There's a desire for fundamental change. And I guess, you know, I want to, I want to sort of leave people with the idea that one of the most important forms of activism, if you want to do something to change, start with what I'm calling big picture activism. It's what Alnor and I've been talking about, that there is a bigger picture that can help us clarify why we're in this mess, why we're living in a way that really nobody wants. Once we understand the basic contours of that system, 
there is another path, there is a way forward that fundamentally has to do with reconnection, deeper reconnection to others, deeper reconnection to nature, and the internal reconnection that is connected to that. And all of that is what, what Alan Orff is describing as spiritual. I, I think, <laughs> I hope I'm yeah. speaking yeah. correctly no, for you. Yeah. No, no, but it's good to connect those dots, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think the, what happens for me, what gives me the strength to keep going and is the evidence of, you know, addicts. You know, and now, of course, we have more trauma, we have more addiction than ever, but we also have much greater clarity about where that trauma comes from and how to heal it. it comes from the disconnection and the reconnection is the healing. And I'm seeing that when it's not only the reconnection with others, as in Alcoholics Anonymous and so on, but it's reconnection in a spiritual way to nature, that earth-based spirituality linked to community connection, deep, vulnerable, sharing, conscious reconnection, we are seeing magical results. We're seeing people healed from, you know, a lifetime of addiction, a lifetime as hardened criminals. So there is, there's such evidence that we human beings long for those deeper connections. And what Alnor was saying earlier, and I wanted to reinforce is that we don't have to go back to live like Ladakis in order to consciously move in the direction that we need to. However, I think what both of us are also saying is that we need to be expressing our voices so that we can build up larger scale transitions. So not just focus on your own personal spiritual journey, your own personal way back to the garden and to the community and more intergenerational contact, but help you know, help join those of us who are trying to get this out so we can have a, a much larger scale transition. And the funny thing is, you know, we need large scale, speedy transition to scale down and slow down. Those are sort of some of the words that I would like to leave people with at this point. What about you, Almor? Yeah, no, it, what comes to mind is this, um, this old Buddhist adage where it says, um, enlightenment doesn't happen in the cave, enlightenment happens in the mouth of the lion, right? That our, our spiritual enlightenment is not going to happen in these atomized individualistic ways as the, the new age sells us, right? It's going to happen in the mouth of the lion and the mouth of the lion in this moment in history and in this context is the transition to what I would call post-capitalist ways of knowing, being and sensing. That we want to create, as you say, human scale localized, bioregional, diverse systems of, of cooperation and play that, that um, are, are outside of the culture of competition, greed, extraction, short-termism, et cetera, right? That determines the, the existing dominant culture right now. And that it's actually not that difficult is maybe my, my, my closing point. You know, um, we, people think that the transition is going to be so difficult. And it's like, well, do we, that the sheer difficulty to prop up the existing system is exactly. unfathomable. Exactly. It's unfathomable, right? Like perfect, people in yeah. mines, human beings uh, working slave labor in extraction jobs, in the bullshit jobs of Starbucks and McDonald's. And 
the the ennui, the depression, the anxiety, the the speed, as you say, of this thing, it's so difficult to prop up the fossil fuel extractive industrial machinery. It requires mass propaganda. It requires um, dehumanization, atomization, all of these things where, where the alternatives are so much more sensible. And, and there's so much more joy in creating post-capitalist alternatives together. And, you know, a simple way to say it is that the dominant system goes against the needs of people and the rest of life, fundamentally against imposition of monoculture, imposition of static structures that go against the flows of life. What we're talking about is moving with life, with the grain, with what we want, with the way it's basically about getting track, getting it's basically about getting back on track to evolution. Evolution is how we evolve in the home of nature and community. And we will keep changing. We will keep growing. We will keep evolving if we can get back on track with life. And it's an exciting journey. And people who are allowing themselves to just step out, even intellectually, you know, just to gather in a group, whether you live in, you know, big city somewhere, get together with some other people to start reflecting more deeply, come together, change the eye to a we, and jointly think about a journey home, a journey to connect with what you really want and what you know that human beings and the rest of creation need to flourish. To hear more from Helena, Alnor, and Local Futures, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on social media, and join our mailing list at localfutures.org. Also, we are really excited about the Planet Local Summit, which we are organising towards the end of September 2023 in Bristol, UK, and which will be available via live stream. The summit will bring together Alnor and Helena and many others who have appeared on this podcast in the first ever global meetup of voices for economic decentralization. Sign up and get more info at localfutures.org.